Well, good morning, family. How good it is to be gathered together uh, here in the house of the Lord. And uh, those of you who are at home, welcome to you as well. The house of the Lord, of course, is not the building. It's the gathering together of the, of the believers. And we can gather together even virtually. It's not as good as being together because we love to see face-to-face and rub shoulders. And, but the day is coming. Not sure when that is, but I hope it's soon. I invite you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Hebrews and chapter 12. I do want to say a special thank you to uh, Pastor Larry for teaching the past two weeks. Enabled me a couple of weeks ago to lead worship and uh, then uh, to participate in our youth camp. And uh, what a blessing that has been. But somehow I messed up in my sermon scheduling. See, normally when there's a challenging passage, I try to conveniently schedule Pastor Aaron or Pastor Larry to, uh, to preach it. But today here we are in Hebrews chapter 12 at a difficult passage. But it's, there's wonderful truth here. We just have to dig a bit. Uh, to understand what it's saying and how it applies to us today. So I hope you have your Bible open because I think it'll help you to, to be able to see the text and follow along. Uh, that'll help you to, to understand what, it, what it's saying. You know, sometimes people throw away, they abandon valuable things. Craig Randall knows that that's true. He works as a Boston garbage collector, (laughs) and sometimes he brings his work home with him, like an old-fashioned sewing machine that he rescued from the trash and became a little treasure, good books that he's found. And there was that Wendy's cup, the Wendy's cup that he saw one day as he was, was picking up the trash, and he picked it up and pulled off the sticker And he won a free chicken sandwich. You never know what you're going to find in the trash. Later that day, he saw another Wendy's cup and picked it up, pulled the sticker off, but this time it said, you have won $200,000. Somebody threw it away. Didn't know what a treasure they had. But Mr. Randall had $200,000. We've said repeatedly in our study in these chapters here in Hebrews that the the purpose of this book is to encourage some very discouraged believers, Hebrew or Jewish folks who had come to faith in Christ. They have endured some very difficult times, some persecution and suffering, and some of them are wavering in their faith. They are beginning to consider walking away from Christ, abandoning Him. But the great message of this book from beginning to end is that Jesus is better. He's better than anything. He's better than everything. Do not abandon Him. Don't walk away from Jesus. In our passage this morning, that encouragement comes in the form of a contrast. It's a contrast between 
two mountains. One is Mount Sinai, we'll see in verses 18 to 21. And it's contrasted with Mount Zion in verses 22 to 24. So you have your Bible open. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This passage describes the scene in Exodus chapter 19 and chapter 20. A passage that these Jewish background believers who were reading this well knew. They knew this passage probably by heart, many of them. Mount Sinai isn't mentioned here by name, but it didn't need to be because everyone understood that's the setting, that's the scene. It's the mountain where God established the, His covenant with Israel, the old covenant, the Mosaic law He gave here at Mount Sinai to His people. It was on this day here in Exodus 19 and 20 that the people received the Ten Commandments. Here we are reminded in this, these short verses in Hebrews, we're reminded of the terrors of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, it says here, was a physical place. It was a place that could be touched. It's a physical mountain. There was blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a storm, it says. Closest thing I can imagine to what this was like would be to stand at the very base of an erupting volcano. There was fire and darkness and smoke and and the ground was quaking and shaking. Then there was a trumpet, a loud trumpet, it says, and a voice that struck terror into the hearts of the people as God spoke to them. And then it tells us, and you can read it back in Exodus 20, that the people begged that God would no longer speak to them. They said to Moses, they said, you speak to us and we will listen But do not let God speak to us lest we die. See, they realized that, they understood that they were on the brink of destruction there in the presence of God as He was on that mountain. God is holy and God is fearsome. And if man or even beast touched the mountain, they would die. Even Moses, who had spoken before with God on several occasions, even Moses, it says here, trembled with fear. Certainly, being there at the foot of Mount Sinai on that day was a terrifying event. Spectacular, glorious, and absolutely terrifying. But notice our text says, that, and it's written to those of us who have come to Christ, 
As those of us who have come to Christ, we have not come to this mountain. The first words there in verse 18. For we have not come to this place. Instead, those of us who have come to Christ, we have come to a different mountain. We are in a different place. It says verse 22. Look there with me. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion. The other mountain here in this contrast, Mount Zion, is mentioned by name. Mount Zion is the mount upon which the city of Jerusalem sits and upon which the temple was built. Like Sinai, Mount Zion is, is also a very real physical place. A physical mountain that can be touched. I had the privilege of touching it a couple of years ago, walking upon it. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, was founded, it was established, it was on Mount Sinai. The New Covenant, the New Testament, was established, it was initiated by Jesus on Mount Zion. It was initiated there when Jesus died for us. But this passage here takes us beyond the physical Mount Zion. It drew our attention to the physical Mount Sinai, which could be touched, but you notice it talks here about something different. It says, we have not come to a place that can be touched in verse 18. And it moves us beyond the physical Mount Zion, and it takes us to one that is not physical. It moves us beyond the initiation of the new covenant which took place on Zion. And it moves to the consummation, to the fulfillment, to the completion of the new covenant. See, here Mount Zion pictures, as it does many other times through the Scripture, Mount Zion pictures heaven itself. Matter of fact, our text says that. If you look, just continue in verse 22, it says, the heavenly Jerusalem. And he says, now as believers, in those who follow Christ, we have come to this mountain. Not a physical mountain, we've come to a spiritual place, to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. And here in verses 22 to 24, what it lists out for us in these verses are some joys, some blessings of Mount Zion. The joys of Mount Zion. Look with me at verse 22. So it says that we have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You know, when you go to the end of the book, you go to the end of the Scriptures, Revelation chapters 21 and 22, it's all about what? The new Jerusalem, this Mount Zion, the heavenly city. It's all about heaven. And what's the central focus? What's the, the center of attention and the great joy in the heavenly city? It is the presence of God. It says, the presence of God is there. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. 
The whole focus of heaven is all about God. The joy of Mount Zion, the first joy here, is the joy of God's presence. It's in the city of the living God who lives there with His people. God dwells with us and we dwell with Him. The second joy of this heavenly Jerusalem continues in verse 22. And notice it says, we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And it says, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. What in the world? Says, folks, we're gathering there. When we get there to Mount Zion, to heaven, we are there with countless, innumerable angels. And it says that they are gathered in festal gathering. It, it literally, they are adorned, they are dressed in party clothes. What we have there is, is there is a grand celebration. I find it interesting. As people, we love to go to festivals, to celebrations, parades, Fourth of July events. I'm telling you, when, what it's saying here is when we get to this heavenly Jerusalem, it's going to be the biggest celebration. Well, not just the biggest. It's, you imagine the biggest celebrations we can imagine, the Olympic opening ceremonies. They're big. Millions of dollars, hundreds of million dollars in one night celebration, festivities. Imagine that coupled with all the big parades of the world. You know, the Macy's parades, the New Year's Day parades, the Rose parades, all the, all the parades. Put those together with Fourth of July and every other national holiday in all the nations around the world. You put them all together and you just begin to get a picture of just a glimpse of what this celebration is. We're going to join together with all the angels in the greatest celebration of eternity. What a sight that will be. Bigger than anything ever seen or imagined. But he goes on, there's another joy in heaven. Verse 23 says that we have come, when we come to Mount Zion, we come to the assembly Literally, the word there is the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. When we come to this heavenly Jerusalem, we are there with all of our redeemed brothers and sisters, the church. But there are two words here that catch my attention. They stood out to me as I was reading this this week. It says the church, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Those two words, the firstborn and enrolled, they stood out to me because those words speak something. See, we don't think much about firstborn today, but in in this culture, in Jewish culture, the firstborn was the heir of the estate. The Scripture tells us that you and me, believers in Jesus Christ, the Scripture calls us joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ Himself shares with us all of the inheritance of the firstborn. We share in all the glory and the joy and the wonder and the splendor 
All the inheritance of heaven itself is ours. That's awesome. And it says those who are enrolled, our name, you see, is on the official roll of heaven. Those days, every city, every nation had a roll. If your name, if you were a citizen, your name was on the list. Brothers and sisters, our name is on the list in heaven. Our name is on the official roll. We are already, Philippians chapter 3 tells us, we are already citizens there. We have a reserved place in heaven. And we have promised blessings there as heirs, as firstborn heirs. Isn't that awesome? It's exciting stuff. When we come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly city, there is not only that, there is, look in verse 23, it continues. And it says, and we come to God, the judge of all, and the spirit of the righteous made perfect. And if you think about this for just a second, remember that just a couple of verses before this, we were at Mount Sinai. What was the terribly frightening thing at Mount Sinai? It was the presence of God. It was the presence of God that struck terror into the hearts of the Israelites. And when His voice spoke, they said, don't speak anymore. Because I think we'll die. But here it says, when we get to heaven, when we get to the Mount Zion, one of the great joys there is the presence, get this, of the judge of all. Why is it a good thing here but it was a terror at Sinai? Well, we'll cover one in a little bit. But let me give you a couple of thoughts I had as I was reading this this week. One is because as judge, God finally puts an end to sin. And all evil will be forever judged. Revelation chapter 20. The unrepentant wicked get what they deserve for their sin. All of God's people who have suffered so much injustice through the years of human history, all of it is judged. All injustices are made right. Finally, it is done. But another thought, if you can remember back a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 11, You remember chapter 11 is the hall of fame of faith. All those Old Testament heroes of faith. As they walk down through the all, you get to the end of the chapter. You remember it said, these all died not having received the promises. Not having received what they were looking for. And there's a little statement at the end of chapter 11. It says, And these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And get this, it says, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they would not be made, what's the word? Perfect. Same word here. Ah. You see, 
what happens here in the new Jerusalem at Mount Zion is all of God's redeemed people are made perfect. He makes good on all of His promises. Not only are we perfected in that sin is removed from us, and we are finally, as the old hymn says, we shall be what we should be. <laughs> I love that phrase. Not only that, He fulfills the promises of, of rewarding every good thing done in His name. Jesus made that promise. Even a cup of cold water doesn't go unnoticed and unrewarded. And He compensates all that has been suffered, all that has been sacrificed, all that has been left behind in following Jesus. Matter of fact, Jesus said it will be repaid a hundredfold, a hundred times over. All of that is here because God is a just and a righteous judge. That's why there's joy, you see, in justice. It goes on in verse 24. And here in Zion we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. There's joy in relationship with God. Jesus as both God and man is the one who has brought us together, God and man. He has reconciled us into relationship with God. We have peace. With God, Romans 5.1 says. What a difference. What a contrast between these two mountains. The terror of, of Mount Sinai. And the joy and the peace and the blessings of Mount Zion. Two very different experiences of God and with God at these two mountains. Which raises the question, what changed? Did God change? Of course, if you know your Bible at all, you know, no. God does not change. The theological word, if you like those 50 cent words, is God is immutable. He does not change. God Himself says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. At Mount Sinai, God's holiness, His absolute purity, His absolute power are on full display for our benefit as well as for the Israelites. It is terrifying. And God does not change. Our God is still that God. And there at Mount Sinai, the law was given. And that law was given. And what happened is that law exposed man's sinfulness. It exposed our sinfulness and it exposed our inability to do right and to be right before God. Before this holy God. Galatians chapter 3 explains that the law served as a tutor, as a teacher, to expose our need, to, to let us see by experience and 
by the Word of God that we desperately need a Savior because we cannot measure up. As Romans 3.23 says, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. So Jesus comes. And on Mount Zion, Jesus established a new covenant. You recall on the night before His crucifixion, and I often remind us of this when we're taking communion, because in those words that we so often read as Jesus established this remembrance of communion, Jesus said, He says, the cup that is poured out for you, this is the new covenant in My blood. Hours later, hanging on the cross, Jesus initiated the new covenant. The difference between cowering in fear at Mount Sinai and dancing for joy on Mount Zion. The difference is the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's where this next phrase, verse 24, comes in. At Mount Zion we come to the sprinkled blood, the blood of Jesus, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Jesus Christ speaks a better word because the blood of Jesus Christ brings forgiven sin. It does what no one, no thing, no other sacrifice could do. It covers our sin completely. Our bill is paid. Our sin is forgiven. Two different mountains. The difference between them is the blood of Jesus Christ. The point here is every person on earth is going to come to God and meet Him at one of these two mountains. Either at Mount Sinai where we stand on our own merit as sinners doomed. Or we meet God at Mount Zion covered by the blood of Jesus. And there is amazing joy. All the blessings we saw there. And the writer of Hebrews in this text continues with four responses that he calls us to, four responses in light of these realities, in light of these two mountains, The first we see in verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them here on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. The first response is really a warning. You know, sometimes, and I would say all these are encouragement. (laughs) This warning is an encouragement. We, we often give warnings as encouragements. We'll say, bye, when we're sending people off. And what are often our next words? Be careful. It's a warning. This is a warning, except it's a much more severe and stern one. The warning is, do not refuse God. Do not refuse His call. Interesting as we look back, you see, at the people of Israel, 
And He calls our attention there. So when you look back at the people of Israel, all of the frightful display that they saw on Mount Sinai, all they saw of God's holiness and God's power still did not change their hearts. Nor did it succeed in promoting holiness among them. They saw that on Mount Zion. They said, don't talk to us anymore. Moses, you go talk to God. Let God talk to you. You come back and give us what He says. And you recall what happened is God called Moses up on the mountain. He was there for 40 days. 40 days later, you know what the people said? (laughs) That's why I didn't want to go near the mountain. He died. He's not coming back. He's been gone 40 days. been gone way too long. He's not coming back. You remember what they did? They built an idol, a calf, and worshipped this idol and said, here's the God that brought us out of Egypt. Right after God had told them in those first commands, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an idol a graven image. Forty days later, here they are. A year later, they come to the edge of the promised land, the land that God had promised to give them. And they refused to go in because there's giants in the land. We we don't think you can do it, God. And he reminds us earlier in this book of Hebrews, their dead bodies lay in the desert, never getting into the promised land. Forty years later, their children went into the land. And now he says here, if they did not escape when he warned them on earth, how much more are we accountable when God has warned us from heaven? Now, think about it. This book of Hebrews begins with these words. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. In Jesus, God's Word got very personal. As John 1 says, the Word became flesh. God became man. He became one of us. We receive far greater truth and understanding about God than what those at Mount Sinai understood. Because in Jesus, we not only learned of God's holiness and power, we saw God's unimaginable love and grace lived out among us in the God-man, in Jesus. We saw His love and grace nailed to the cross in our place. His point is, in Jesus, God offers grace and forgiveness of sin and relationship with Him, but there is no escape for those who spurn and walk away from Jesus. Jesus, don't walk away from Jesus. You know, it's possible to attend church all your life, to show up every Sunday, 
Maybe some Sundays virtually. (laughs) To hear this truth, that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. To hear it, to know it intellectually, but to never respond to this truth in faith, to actually receive, to trust Jesus as your Savior. It's possible to do that. Just like the old saying, just because you're in a garage doesn't mean you're a car. You see, I think that was the case with some of the original readers of this letter to the Hebrews. Most of the folks who are reading this letter are real believers in Jesus Christ, but some of them, I think, some of these folks who were there in the church, they had come in along with some of their friends. They liked the message of the gospel and they listened to it. They knew it intellectually, but they had never placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And this book has several warnings all through. And this is the last of them. And I think the warning is there to these folks who have been there and they've been tasting of it. They've been investigating. They've been enjoying the fellowship of Christians, but they haven't actually become one. And he said, don't walk away. Don't turn away from God's call. The same message is there today. I don't know your hearts. I've known most of you for many years. But it is possible that someone here today or someone watching at home, you've been part of this church or some other church for years and years and years, but you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. The message here is, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, do that today. Settle it now. As 2 Corinthians 6 says, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. That's the first and I'd say the most important response to this passage that all of us need to do. But there's three more very quickly. Verse 26 to 28, follow along as I read. It says, At that time His voice shook the earth, but now He has promised yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens. The phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that's cannot be shaken. God literally rocked the world of the Jews at Sinai when the earth trembled and shook. And He says here that there's another shaking that's coming. A shaking that results in the removal of all things that are shaken. Which it says the things that are shaken refers to all the created universe. There's a whole lot of shaking going on here in this passage. It says the only things that cannot be shaken, the only things that aren't going to be destroyed, are going to be wiped, that aren't going to be wiped out, are the eternal things. And they're the only things that's going to remain when this happens. A number of passages talk about this in the Bible. Peter writes this in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. 
But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. We're looking forward to an eternal place, to Mount Zion, the heavenly city, the new heavens and new earth. As believers, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. By the way, notice back in verse 22, it does not say that we will come to this mountain. But it says we have come to Mount Zion. In other words, and that's an important distinction. In other words, Mount Zion is already ours. The heavenly city and all the joys and blessings that are there are already ours. As I mentioned earlier, Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven. The only reason that you and I are not in heaven today is God has left us here on temporary assignment as His ambassadors. But our citizenship is in heaven. Our home is in heaven. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. A mansion or a condo, however you want to take the verse. He's building a place for you. Our rewards are there. Our treasures are there, hopefully. Jesus said, lay up treasures in heaven, not on earth. I hope that's where you're laying yours up. Our family is there. Our Savior is there. In this world today, evil sometimes seems to be winning, doesn't it? We look around and it looks like evil is winning. But you and I as believers in Christ can face every day with confident gratitude because we know our destiny. So be grateful that we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Confident gratitude. I know that's there. That's confidence. Thank you, God, that this world isn't my home. Isn't it a mess? And it's just getting worse. Trials, troubles, persecution, disease, even pandemics should not worry. They should not distress us because we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Very quickly, two more. Verse 28. And thus let's offer to God acceptable worship. What is acceptable worship? Well, it's not about attending church, although Hebrews 10.25 says that gathering together is important. It shouldn't be neglected. Acceptable worship is all about our heart. It's a heart that is grateful to God for His grace, and it expresses itself by honoring and serving God. In fact, that word worship, can be translated here, serve or service. And so the third response here is for us to live for God. I love the way that, that Romans 12:1 puts it. It says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable, and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You see, the worship service is here to instruct us and to motivate us and to encourage us as we worship God with our voices, but it's to move us out to worship God with our life all through the week. This shouldn't be the beginning and end of our worship. This should just be the beginning. It should carry through all week 
long. Living for God in worship is the only reasonable response, Romans 12.1 says, to God's grace. Lastly, the end of verse 28 says, With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We are to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Because as we noted earlier, our God is still the God of Mount Sinai. He is still a consuming fire. Back in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, It is a fearful, a dreadful thing to fall into the arms of the living God. See, we are not afraid of God's judgment. We come to Mount Zion because of the blood of Christ. We are not afraid of His judgment. And there is joy in God's presence, not fear. But we are still to revere and to honor God because He is still a consuming fire. He is still absolutely holy. His judgment is fierce and fearsome. And we understand both of those two realities. It moves us. It changes us. You ever look at the life of the Apostle Paul and just go, man, that guy's a fanatic. What is it that moves Paul? Where he endures all that he endures and is given all that he gives for the sake of Christ. Listen to what he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. He says, Therefore, knowing the fear of God. And he talks there in that passage about God's judgment. We persuade others. See, when we know the heart of God, the love of God, that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, and that that God has commissioned us, as He says next in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, He has commissioned us to be ambassadors. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making His appeal through us because He is, the passage says. God is using us to be His mouthpieces. And the message is, we implore you, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What, what is it that moves us? Because we understand God's fear. We understand where your neighbor and your uncle and your cousin and your coworker and your fellow student, we understand where they are headed apart from Christ. They're going to face the God of Sinai. But through Christ, we face not the fear and the judgment, but we we come into the presence of the loving Father. What a marvelous passage. I told you there's a lot here. and There's so much we didn't cover. You can dig deep. I encourage you to do that. But isn't that a marvelous message and one we need to hear? Let's pray. Father, there may be somebody here in the room or somebody watching at home that needs, even in this moment, to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I understand I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And that's why Jesus came to pay for my sin. The Bible says we simply need to place our faith, our trust in Him, to believe in Him, and we will be 
saved. Father, I pray that not one person in the sound of my voice will walk away from Your grace. That they'll turn away from Your call. Lord, may no one do that. And Father, for the rest of us, may we be grateful and live life with confidence knowing our destiny and may we live for You. Father, may we live out our reverence for You by sharing the Gospel. May we not be worried about the cost, but rather take on the responsibility You've given us and be faithful in that to be live as Your ambassadors. This we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus.